Chapter 24, Part 2 of 2 of The Guns of Bull Run, A Story of the Civil War's Eve. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Bill Yallowley. The Guns of Bull Run, A Story of the Civil War's Eve, by Joseph A. Altscheller. Chapter 24 but he rode briskly ahead, trusting that the problem of the horse would solve itself, and, as he turned into a field, several men in blue uniforms rode forward and ordered him to halt. Harry obeyed promptly. "'Where are you going?' asked the leading man, a minor officer. "'To Washington,' replied the boy in the uncouth language that he thought fitted his role. "'And what are you going to Washington for?' "'To sell this hoss,' replied Harry, on the impulse of the moment. I raised him myself, but he's too fine for me to ride, especially when hosses are bringing such good prices. He is a fine animal, said the officer, looking at him longingly. Do you want to sell him now? Harry shook his head. No, he replied. I'm going to make one of them big bugs in Washington pay for him and pay for him good. The officer laughed. You're not such a simpleton as you look, he said. You're right. They'll pay you more for him in the capital than I could. Right on. They may pass you over Longbridge, or they may not. That part of it is not my business. Harry went forward at a trot, glad enough to leave such dangerous company behind. But he saw that he was now in the very thick of mighty risks. He could encounter a menace at every turn. Had he realized fully the character of his undertaking when he was in the charcoal burner's hut, he would have hesitated long. Now there was nothing to do but go ahead and take his fate, whatever it might be. Yet his tale of wishing to sell a horse served him well. After a few questions, it passed him by a half-dozen interruptions, and he became so bold that he stopped and bought food for his noonday meal at a little wayside tavern kept by a woman. Three or four countrymen were lounging about, and all of them were gossips. But Harry found it worth while to listen to their gossip. It was their business to carry vegetables and other provisions into Washington for sale, and they picked up much news. They said that the northern government was pushing all its troops to the front. All the politicians and writers in Washington were clamoring for a battle. One blow and Jeff Davis and his secession would be smashed to atoms. Harry's young blood flamed at the contemptuous words, but he could not afford to show any resentment. Yet this was valuable information. He could confirm Beauregard's belief that an attack would soon be made in great force. When Harry left them, he turned again to the left as he saw a stretch of country rolling and apparently wooded lying in that direction. Once, when a young boy, he had come to Washington with his father for a stay of several weeks, and he had a fair acquaintance with the region about the capital. He knew that forested hills lay ahead of him, and beyond them the Potomac. In another hour he was in the hills, which he found without people. Through every opening in the leaves he saw Washington, and he could also discern long lines of redoubts on the Virginia side of the river. Late in the afternoon he came to a small abandoned log cabin. He inferred that its owner had moved away because of the war. As nearly as he could judge it, it had not been occupied for several weeks. Back of it was a small meadow, enclosed with a rail fence, but everything else was deep woods. He turned his horse into the meadow and left his saddle, bridle, and saddle blanket in the house. He might not find anything when he returned, but he must take the risk. Then he set off at a brisk pace through the woods, which opened out a little after dusk, and disclosed a great pillared white house with surrounding outbuildings. He knew at once that this was Arlington, 
the home of one of the southern generals, Lee, of whom he had heard his father speak well. But he also saw, despite the dusk, blue uniforms and the gleam of bayonets. And as he looked, he saw, too, earthworks and the signs that many men were present. He lay long among the bushes until the night thickened and darkened, and he resolved to inspect the earthworks thoroughly. No very strict watch seemed to be kept, and, in truth, it did not seem to be needed here, so near to Washington, and so far away from the Southern Army. Before ten o'clock everything settled into quiet, and he cautiously climbed a great beech, which was in full and deep foliage. The boughs were so many and the leaves so dense that one standing directly under him could not have seen him. But he went up as far as he could, and, crouched there, made a comprehensive survey. It was a fine moonlight night, and he saw the earthwork stretching for a long distance, thorough and impregnable to anything except a great army. Beyond that was the silver band which was the Potomac, and beyond the river were the clustered roofs which were Washington. But he turned his eyes back to the earthworks, and he tried to fasten firmly in his mind their number and location. This, too, would be important news, most welcome to Beauregard. The boy's elation grew. They gave him a delicate and dangerous task, but he was doing it. He had overcome every obstacle so far, and he would overcome them to the end. He was bound to enter that Washington, which in the distance seemed to lie in such a close cluster. He felt that he had lingered long enough at Arlington, and descending he made a great curve around the earthworks, coming to the river north of Arlington. His next problem was the passage of the Potomac. He did not dare to try Long Bridge, which he knew would be guarded strictly, but he thought he might find some boatman who would take him over. As the capital was so crowded, the farmers were continually crossing with loads of provisions, and now that an uncommonly hot July had come, the night would be a favorite time for the passage. A search up and down the bank brought its reward. A Virginian, who said his name was Grimes, had a heavy boat filled with vegetables, and Harry was welcome as a helper. "'It's a dollar for you,' said Grimes, who did not trouble to ask the boy his name, "'and here are your oars.' The two, pulling strongly, shot the boat out into the stream, and then rowed in a diagonal line for the city, which rose up brilliant and great in the moonlight. Other boats were in the river, but they paid no attention to the barge, loaded with produce, and rowed by two innocent countrymen. They soon reached the Washington shore, and Grimes handed Harry a silver dollar. "'You're a strong young fellow,' he said, "'and I guess you've earned the money. My farm is only four miles up the river, and there's going to be a big market for all I can raise.' I need a good hand to help me work it. How'd you like to come with me and take a good job, while them that don't know no better go ahead and do the fighting? Thank you for your offer, replied Harry. But what I've got business to attend to in Washington. He slipped the dollar into his pocket because he had earned it honestly, and entered Washington just as the rising sun began to gild domes and roofs. Coming from the boat, his appearance aroused no suspicion. People were pouring into Washington then as they were pouring into the Confederate capital at Richmond. One dressed as he, looking as he, could enter or depart almost as he pleased, despite the ring of fortifications. Up went the sun, and the full day came, extremely hot and clear. Harry turned into a little restaurant, and spent half of his well-earned dollar for breakfast. Neither proprietor nor waiter gave him more than a casual glance. Evidently they were used to serving countrymen. Harry, feeling refreshed and strong again, paid for his food, and went outside. The streets were thronged. He had expected nothing else, but there was a great air of excitement and expectancy, as if something important were going to happen. "'What is it?' asked Harry of a man beside him. "'Don't you know what day this is?' asked the man. "'I forgot,' replied the boy, in the slouchy speech and intonation of the hills. 
I just came in with Dad this morning, bringing a wagon load of fresh vegetables. You look as foolish as you talk, said the man scornfully. This is the Fourth of July, and the special session of Congress called by President Lincoln is to meet this morning and decide how to give the rebels the thrashing they need. I did hear something about that, replied Harry, but working in the field I forgot all about it. I allow I'll stroll that way. He drifted on with the crowd toward the Capitol, which rose nobler and more imposing than ever, a great marble building, gleaming white in the sunshine. Harry's heart throbbed. He could not yet disassociate himself from the idea that he, as one of the nation, was a part owner of the Capitol. But forgetting all danger, he persisted in his errand. A great event was about to occur, and he intended to see it. There were soldiers everywhere. The street blazed with uniforms, but the people were allowed to gather about the Capitol, and many also entered. A friendly sentinel passed Harry, who stood for a few minutes in the rotunda. He was careful to keep near the other spectators, in order that he might not attract attention to himself. All things that he saw cut sharply into his sensitive and eager mind. It was in truth an extraordinary situation for one who had come as he had come, and waited, calm of face, but with every pulse beating. The comments of the other spectators told him who the famous men were as they entered. Here were Cameron and Wade of the lowering brows. There passed Taney, the venerable Chief Justice, and then drying quiet Hamlin. The Vice President, on his way to preside over the Senate, went by. A tall, magnificent figure in a general's uniform next attracted Harry's attention. He was an old man, but he held himself very erect, and his head was crowned with splendid snowy hair. "'Old fuss and feathers,' said a man near Harry, and the boy knew that this was General Scott, the Virginian who had led the famous and victorious march into the city of Mexico, and who was now, in name, but in name only, commander of the Northern Army. His father had served under him in those memorable battles, and Harry looked at him with a certain veneration, as the old man passed on and disappeared into another room. Then came more, some famous, others destined to be so. The atmosphere of the great building was surcharged. Harry and his comrades had heard that the North was discouraged, that the people would not fight, that they would let the erring sisters go in peace. It did not seem so to him here. The talk was all of war and of invading the South, and he seemed to feel a tenacious spirit behind it. He managed to secure entrance to the lobbies of both Senate and House, and he listened for a while to the debates. He discovered the same spirit there. He felt that he had a right to report not only on the forts of Washington and the movements of brigades, but also on the temper in the North. Resolution and tenacity, he now saw, were worth as much as cannonballs. Harry did not leave the Capitol until the middle of the afternoon, when he drifted back to the restaurant at which he had obtained his breakfast, where he spent the other half of the dollar for luncheon. Then he resolved to escape from Washington that night. He had picked up by casual talk and observation together a fair knowledge of Washington's defenses. Above all, he had learned that the North was pouring troops in an unbroken stream into the Capitol, and that the great advance on the line of Bull Run would take place very soon. He could scarcely expect to achieve more. He had already surpassed his hopes, and it was surely time to go. He left the restaurant. The streets were still crowded, and he saw standing at the nearest corner a figure that seemed familiar. He took a long look, and then he was shaken with alarm. It was Shepard. He had seen him under such tense conditions that he could never forget the man. The turn of his shoulders, the movement of his head, all were familiar and Harry had a great respect for the keenness and intelligence of Shepard. He could not forget how Shepard had talked to him that night in Montgomery. There was something uncanny about the man, 
and he had a sudden conviction that Shepard had seen him long since and was watching him. He thrust his hands into his capacious pockets. The pistols were still there, and he resolved that he would use them if need be. He went at first toward the Potomac, and he did not look back for a long time, rambling about the streets in a manner apparently aimless. Now and then a quiver ran down his back, and he knew it was due to the mental fear that Shepard was pursuing. When he did look back at last, he did not see him, and he felt immediate elation. It would not be long now until dark, and then he would make his escape across the river. Time was slow, but it could not keep darkness back forever, and, as soon as it had come fully, he turned toward the north. Southern troops would not be looked for there, and egress would be easier in that direction. He passed on without interruption, and soon was in the suburbs, which were then so shabby. Then he looked back, and cold fear plucked at the roots of his hair. A man was following him, and he could tell even in the dim light that it was Shepard. A shudder shook him now. A rope was the fate for a spy. But he recovered himself and walked on faster than ever. The cabins thinned away, and he saw before him bushes. His keen hearing brought to him the soft sounds of the pursuing footsteps. Now he took his resolution. There were few games at which two could not play. He passed between two bushes, came around, and returned to the open. But he returned with one of the pistols cocked and leveled, his finger on the trigger. Shepard, pursuing swiftly, walked almost against the muzzle, and Harry laughed softly. "'Well, Mr. Shepard,' he said, "'you followed me well, but as I've no mind to be hung for a spy or anything else, I must ask you to go back.' "'You have the advantage at present, it is true,' said Shepard. "'But what makes you think I was going to shoot at you, or have you seized? Isn't it what one would naturally expect?' "'Yes, perhaps, but I could have given the alarm while you were still in the city. And I speak the truth when I say I do not know just what I had in mind. But at all events the tables are turned. You hold me at the pistol's muzzle, and I admit it.' He smiled, and the boy could not keep from liking him. "'Mr. Shepard,' said Harry, what you told me at Montgomery was true. We of the South did not realize the numbers, power, and spirit of the North. I know now the truth of what you told me, but on the other hand, you of the North do not realize the fire, courage, and devotion of the South. I understand it, but I'm afraid that not many of our people do so. Suppose we call it quits once more. Let this be Montgomery all over again. You do not want to shoot me here any more than I wanted to shoot you down there." I admit that also, said Harry. Then you are safe from me, if I am safe from you. Agreed, said Harry, as he lowered the weapon. Goodbye, said Shepard. Goodbye. But they did not offer to shake hands. Each turned his back on the other, and when Harry stopped in the bushes, he saw only the dim outlines of Washington. At midnight he found a colored man who, for pay, rode him across the Potomac. At dawn he found his horse peacefully grazing in the meadow, and, at the next dawn, he was once more within southern lines. End of chapter 24, part 2 of 2. Recording by Bill Yallily.